0: in a room with scotch we're michael and ethan and we are in room with scotch
1: (laughs) we are who are you i'm michael
0: and i'm ethan and now you can tell our voices apart but like that's not really important that's a good question uh as we found out when i did a mix of (laughs) One of our fiction podcasts. Uh, My voice is just yours kicked down a few registers.
1: Yep. (laughs) Um, We are the same person, (laughs) just an octave apart.
0: Well, that's sort of what I was going for. Like, we are Michael (laughs) and Ethan. Like, our voices are distinct, but not different, because we are the same. All is one. Uh, Some other sort of religious (laughs) assertions that I don't necessarily believe. Um, And anyway, thank you for being with us as we uh, read for the second time, or the second half of time, we read uh, By Force Alone by Lavi Tidhar. Um,
1: I appreciate how you have bifurcated time now.
0: I'm also realizing I didn't really eat any dinner, so this is going to be an interesting episode. Uh
1: I had a, a toasted slice of challah bread so
0: well aren't you special um mm-hmm.
1: homemade my wife made it
0: oh so it's your wife that's special yes i mean we we both know that's true so
1: it, right it works out I mean, um that's an unassailable fact
0: uh yes and who would assail it no one <laughs> uh
1: But who would wassail it?
0: So anyway, we're drinking scotch. uh, And my scotch is Old Pulteney, established 1826 in Wick, Scotland. It is 12 years old. It has spent that long in barrels on what is apparently, like, the farthest northern point it is possible to be on, like, the mainland of Scotland. Michael,
1: what scotch are you drinking? I am drinking Oban, 14 year established 1794 Oban, Argyll, Scotland, West Highlands.
0: Yes. Uh, since this is part two, we're assuming you've listened to part one and you've heard our whole spiel about why these are two different scotches and we are failures as podcast hosts. Um, <laughs> But considering the ongoing times in which we live, that, you know... I know we did a whole thing, like, in our episode released in, like, April of 2020. Like, hey, I hope that by the time you listen to this, things will be better. Um, And you would be right to call us foolish and naive. Um, How
1: silly we were.
0: Anyway... Uh, yeah, so, anyway, we'll assume you know why these are two different scotches, and if you don't, why are you listening to part two of an episode without listening to part one? That's on you. Um,
1: Yep, your fault.
0: So, that said, uh, I guess Karen needs to read the rules.
2: Rule one, once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule 2. No one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule 3. Ethan must never say the phrase, first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule four. Michael must never say the words vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule five. If anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so, because this podcast is anti-UTI. Rule number six. The wives are entitled to one glass of scotch or some equivalent beverage. Rule number seven. If four scotch-centric episodes pass with no losses then everyone loses
0: and what happens if someone breaks the rules
2: if one person breaks a rule they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule all that being said everyone drink responsibly
1: yeah ethan yeah
0: michael gentle 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 listener. listener Thank you for reading the rules, Karen. Uh, You were really just on your mark that time.
1: Yeah, that was, you know, maybe the best it's ever been.
0: Uh, I forget what adorable toast you introduced last episode, so I'm just (laughs) going to say (laughs) McClunkett.
1: The toast was skunk.
0: (laughs) So I had some of the syllables right.
2: Yeah, yeah. I,
0: that's also one of the, the sentences or the words, I believe that Greedo says in, uh, Star Wars: A New Hope.
1: Hmm. I mean, it's a fair callback, I guess.
0: To what our childhood?
1: To S- Star Wars: A New Hope. Oh yeah. Which I mean, we've established by was calling it Star Wars: A New Hope, and you it's know, in the past. It's a callback. We are. Of not the Gen X generation. I was going to say,
0: and also we're white men in our 30s, so it's a callback to like everything about us as people.
1: Yeah, that's also true. Yeah, um, Very, very true. Oh, by the way, happy First Contact Day.
0: Oh, yeah. I saw a bunch of stuff about that on Twitter, and I don't know anything about it.
1: I, I mean, if too- you've ever seen Star Trek First Contact, the Vulcans reached Earth and made contact with the humans on April 5th in now, 2052.
0: Now so. I just quoted Rodian from Star Wars. What makes you think I would know anything about when the Vulcans come in the near future?
1: <laughs> and now we've established how vastly different we are <laughs> as hosts <I saw> on this <laughs> podcast.
0: Cause when a podcast is okay. two hosts, it needs... Very different perspectives, such as a Died-in-the-Wolf Star Wars fan and a Died-in-the-Wolf Star Trek fan.
1: Exactly. We don't call ourselves Star Trek fans. We're Trekkies. Thank you very much.
0: Okay, I have heard that Trekkies was, like, an insulting thing and real ones called themselves
2: Trekkers.
1: No, Can there I was a whole debate about that? Trekkies versus Trekkers, you know, back in you know in the day. Sure. And, like, there are still some who are like, no, call me Trekker," but, you know, Trekkies are... You know we've we've really embraced sort of the term owned it. sure
0: yep uh, so. I was gonna say one day maybe we'll get a Stargate fan on here for some real diversity
1: <laughs> yes oy,
0: oy vey. the jokes you could make make when you have literally dozens of listeners um, <laughs> it's probably not even true uh, all right
1: I I, I was happy to hear your optimism in making that word plural yeah so. i know i i
0: thought about not and then i just thought i'd go for it and then i second guessed myself and here we are um and where the heck are we we're reading the book talking about a book by force alone by Slavi tidhar yes uh shoot
1: you, well, in the last episode, Ethan, you. you dangled something like a cat treat in front yes. of our listeners.
0: And that that me saying, uh, shoot, was me trying to remember what it was and failing.
1: <laughs> um Let me think. It was something about the themes of Stalker. Oh,
0: thank you. Yes. Okay, I'm there. Um, Boom. Got it. So, essentially, in my religious philosophy book group that is now a part of this podcast even though they don't know (laughs) um when my friend discussed the themes of stalker or the the plot of stalker i recognized part of the plot of this book um Mm -hmm. that's your callback if you listened to the last episode if you didn't uh, again the whole thing about why are you listening to part two without listening to part one um now that said Uh, He went into the themes of Stalker because as any, like, uh, you know, religious, uh, religious philosophy book discussion would do, if it's worth its salt, we were talking about the existence of God at length. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm not going to do that now, probably, but maybe (laughs) I am because of who I am as a person. Uh, But the the point about stalker was that the zone this alien area uh, the the sort of themes of stalker are either the zone is something that has power in and of itself
2: hmm.
0: or the themes the the zone is something that has power in as much as you imbue that power into it mm-hmm. Now, of course, this goes back to one of the classical debates about the existence of God or even the characterization of God as a concept, right? Because depending on your theology, um, you know, literal sense or definition of the word theology, God could be something that from your human nature you imbue concepts into, or God Mm -hmm. is something that has a separate existence that sort of imbues concepts into you.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: are you with me so far got it just at least for the sake of argument I'm not okay. saying I believe mm-hmm. any of these things I'm just saying this is like a this perception is, yep. an argument a debate yep. you can have okay so uh, again in stalker like the implication I mean Andre Tarkovsky I believe was russian orthodox so like all of his work has sort uh, of a religious uh, sheen to it or or element to it sure um so stalker is one of those things that like i don't think ever the movie ever says the word god but it's about god uh-huh. um and if i'm correct that Lavie vitidare has imported a lot of both the the literal set dressing and plot stuff from stalker into this book I don't know that he's talking about God. I think he might be talking about the matter of Britain or King Arthur as a character. Um, And this Mm -hmm. goes back in perhaps a way you didn't mean Michael to a lot of what you talked about in the last episode about King Arthur as a character. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is he a character? And if so, how, or is he not a character? And if so, how, um, sure. And I think I, I, I alluded to this last episode But I think it's important That we in this book Divorce the idea Of who the viewpoint character is From who the main character is Fair um, And if you do that And you follow it through That's what leads to the thing I implied Last episode about Arthur Perhaps being the main character If not the viewpoint character in all 14 parts of this book mm-hmm. okay so uh the matter of Britain what is it like how powerful is it um, Michael do you is, I don't know how commonly understood this phrase is do you understand what I mean when I say the matter of Britain or what is your understanding of that phrase if any
1: um... I guess it's a more or less existential question of the political entity that is Great Britain.
0: Sure. It has to do with that. The matter of fill-in-the-blank country um, has to do with sort of the founding myth of a country. Oh, okay. And of course, a lot of work has been done about the idea of myth as opposed to Story as opposed to fact Mm -hmm. And these Mm -hmm. categories are not necessarily mutually exclusive But they're also not mutually inclusive So a country could have a founding myth that has very little or nothing to do with historical fact Or it could have Mm -hmm. something to do with historical fact, but not entirely or you know Mm -hmm. Often the less questioned a country's founding myth is um the more The people who buy it assume it's directly correlated with historical fact Mm
1: -hmm.
0: excuse me so the King Arthur legend or the King Arthur saga is often called the matter of Britain even though Mm
2: -hmm.
0: you know as uh, you mentioned the afterword to this book last episode Michael um, Mm -hmm. the afterword and and other more extensive uh, literary histories lay out A lot of the legend of King Arthur comes from writers who are not British. Um, Yes. And, of course, what it means to be British and and whether a given person or writer is or is not British is, like, an entirely too vast subject that is not part of our purview in this podcast. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, uh, I wanted to sort of front load this episode with all of that. Well, I take an excursion into the one major sort of sweeping set of things I wanted to say about this book.
1: Great. You let me talk a lot last episode, so.
0: (laughs) Well, and like a lot of this is in response to what you talked about. Sure. Uh, So.
1: You just want the last word. I see how it is. I mean.
0: (laughs) Always. Um, So. Okay, so the major thought I had while reading this book is that this book probably is something that has never been done in the history of retelling Arthurian legend. Um,
1: okay. I think I agree, but explain your reasons. <laughs> sure. And
0: I'm gonna front frontload that explanation with the or the the to come clean to say, I certainly am not an expert in retelling of Arthurian legends. I have read mm. almost certainly less than 5% of, like, the uh, fictionalized... Well, they're all fictionalized, but of the legends right. of Arthur that have existed from the 8th mm. century to the 21st century. Like, right. you know, Arthur, Arthur books are huge, and especially as the fantasy genre explodes in the last part of the 20th century and into the 21st century like there's just so many that it's impossible i mean it's not impossible but i would have to be like a phd student in Mm. uh retellings of arthurian legend to have any kind of like authoritative grasp on the genre Uh now that said i have read a lot and i've read you know, literary histories that themselves encompass a lot. So I know something about this. And on this show before, I've talked about something I learned in film criticism, which is about genres that have a primitive or classical and a revisionist stage, right? Um, Yes. So the primitive is like you're building up a set of tropes for a genre, but they're not necessarily there yet. The classical is like the tropes are manifested in a very like you know this is fundamental to the type of story we're telling sort of way mm-hmm. and revisionist relies on you knowing the tropes of the classical stage in order to subvert them right um, so uh i want to say that like arthurian legend has like a fractal version of this where it has multiple stages mm. and each of those stages goes through each of those three uh phases we'll say sure um and uh tidhar in this afterward that you talked about last episode michael he lays out some of that so he lays out sort of mm. a very brief literary history of le mort d'artour right thomas mallory's book um that summarizes and encapsulates a whole bunch of the arthur legends that come before it and almost tries to be like the epitome of them so that's very briefly to say that like these legends have had a primitive stage where all of like there's arthur legends and there's, Mer- there's merlin legends and they're not all about the same people like very early on there may have been two different Merlins that sort of got collapsed together and like all of this stuff goes on. Le Morte relied on its audience knowing those legends in order to build them into like its own mythology, right? Mm-hmm. But Le Morte becomes almost this primitive stage for an Elizabethan and then a Victorian version like set of Arthur legends. Um, so, in a sense, in like a broader sense, that's like the classical period of these legends when like the canon is established, there's like a narrative established. Um the late version of these legends is perhaps uh Howard Pyle in the late 19th century um or some of the other Victorian retellers of these legends. They take them and they sort of sanitize them for a Victorian audience and a boys audience um And in a sense, that's like both a revisionist thing based on what's come before and also a classical thing in that they establish a new canon. Um, Hmm. And I'm obviously doing this in a very thumbnail way that like any scholar who like tries to follow me is going to hate me probably. Um, But I'm okay with that. Uh, So if you take... Howard Pyle and even John Steinbeck does like a version of the Arthurian legends in the the 30s I believe Mm. if you take them as like following the classical canon sort of established by Thomas Mallory and Lamar D'Artour the revisionist stage of that whole set of things is of course T.H. White because T.H. White Uh is and it's in his dialogue in some places he's relying on you knowing earlier versions of these legends to the point that like some of the knights and, and merlin and some of the other characters in the once and future king reference like wait am i not supposed to be doing this part this at this part of the story like it's as if it's a story uh, that they know that they're in and that's a very revisionist mm-hmm. thing yes um also did you get me to read the once in future king when i was in college maybe because i also you mentioned last episode you read it when you were in college and i also read it when i was in college and considering our nightly makeout sessions um i can't mm-hmm. believe that like
1: which so which direction did the once in future king go? well that's what i'm from saying from I, i'm not to sure yours, but... or from your mouth to mine i don't know exactly um <laughs>
0: I'm also sorry if either of our wives or mothers ever listens to this episode. <laughs> I'm not changing anything that I said, but I'm sorry.
1: You're sorry, yeah. I mean, um, filled with sorrow. Literally, I'm crying. <laughs> I'm crying.
0: Um, to, you don't remember one way or the other?
1: I am not sure. Um, I mean, it could
0: be, you know, independent discovery, like, but...
1: Yeah, it could be. I, I just... so there there are three explanations i discovered it and told you to read it you discovered it and told me to read it or we both discovered it independently right it
0: just can't be a coincidence that we both read it at that exact same time in our lives unless it can't can't be it
1: can't be it's in a quantum state
0: really um which is like both appropriate for this book and a callback to ball lightning i would like to note um
1: It's it's true it's true it is both and all the way back to ocean at the end yeah, of the lane. So, yeah, you know. Um anyway, it's been since then <laughs> that this podcast has been Schrodinger's cat. Man,
0: I never enshrined that rule about you not saying Schrodinger's cat.
1: You didn't. You enshrine that, and I'll enshrine you not being allowed to talk. See, about I was gonna
0: language. say, I was gonna say the same thing you just just said, except like I don't want that. I don't want that rule for me. <laughs> Um, and I'm trying to find a way that sounds fair, but isn't to enshrine that rule for you, but not for me, but it's not coming yet. So I'll let you know if it does. Um, okay. Anyway, uh, wow. Once in future Thank you. king. Okay. So now the once in future king becomes almost the primitive stage of what I would call the next stage of Arthurian retellings or Arthurian legends. Mm, Um, mm -hmm. And it's a stage that I strongly suspect I couldn't, I I haven't done the work to prove it, reacts against the Once and Future King in the sense that the Once and Future King is like the epitome of uh, the retellings where everyone's in plate armor everyone's like the thomas mallory Mm. version is like taken at face value like the next generation thinks that that's been done so a bunch of like what happens in the next generation is like to make arthur very historical um Mm. sometimes almost to the point and sometimes completely to the point of excuse me of um taking like a fantasy element out of it or the fantasy element is like so it's like there's a genre where it's like muted? yeah it's muted or it's like people in our world now claim to have mystical experiences right and yep the fantasy element in these retellings is like no more fantastical than if those were true so you maybe have astral travel or you maybe have prophecies or something but it's not like you have time yeah but it's not like you have an arthurian questing beast that like or a a lovecraftian rather questing beast that has tentacles and is just on stage and you have to deal with it right um right examples of this genre include jack white w-h-y-t-e wrote a trilogy mm. mary stewart's uh crystal cave is the first book in her trilogy that might be the name of the trilogy um mary and zimmer bradley's mists of avalon trilogy uh is mm. not good but it's an example um uh, there's there's
1: another author we're making <laughs> uh
0: there's other like oh um Stephen r lawhead does a, a version of this that it tends more towards the fantasy, but it still has a lot of more historically, historical fiction kind of elements, I think. Um, so, like, that's the kind of thing I'm, I'm talking about here. Um, sure. Now, if you call T.H. White the primitive stage of this development and these guys the classical stage... By Force Alone fits in really well with being the revisionist stage of this uh this set of 3. Oh sure.
1: In the sense that unquestionably What's that? Unquestionably, I'd say.
0: I appreciate that. Um the 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 way I I was thinking of it is like a, he he goes a lot more into a lot of the history of like the 6th century or the 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 post-Roman stuff than most of like the true fantasy takes on arthur do at least most of the ones that i've read again Mm. i haven't read a comprehensive set Mm -hmm. of them um like a lot of the kingdoms that he mentions there's bernicia there's daira um i know there's other ones these are real kingdoms in dark ages britain that don't get talked a lot about either in historical or fantasy fiction but Hmm. if arthur was a real person and that's obviously a big if of of history uh he would have had to deal with all of these little feuding they're not even feudal kingdoms they're like the stage before feudal kingdoms they're they're warlord territories um and again Hmm. london as this this roman town that the romans pulled out of and there's historical records anywhere that the romans pulled out of like 100 to 200 years later like the people who live in these territories usually can't even conceptualize how the romans built the things they built um sure so like a surprising amount of the the kingdoms and and some of the other like you know non-fantastic elements in this book are historical like almost more of them than you might Mm -hmm. expect um So Tidar retains that element of it, but he adds back in a very fantastical element. Um, And Mm. as a whole concept, I think the one thing that he does that makes this book revisionist as to the couple generations of books that came before it is he conceptualizes of treating the matter of Britain in the most blasphemous and offensive way he possibly could. Oh, absolutely! Um, and when you you made a distinction, Michael, in the last episode about like uh, there was some uh, there was some way that I uh, I wish I could remember You use the word like blasphemous or religious, um, but mm. you were distinguishing like the King Arthur legend from something that would be yep. religious. But I think that yep. this element of it oh. it is religious in. In the sense of a national religion, like,
1: yes, well, that's that that gets into like, um, th- this isn't the religion podcast, but like, Anglicanism is all like, it, if you want to put it into percentages, sure. like, is it 50% about the nation and 50% about the religion, or is it you know. 75% about England and 25% about, you know, Jesus sure. and so I forth. Think, um, I think Anglicanism. That's like related here. Sure.
0: I was going to say, I think Anglicanism, especially the way it develops internationally, I'm almost tempted to call it and a red herring. Um, it's certainly a parallel yep. example you could use. I don't think it's related to yep. King Arthur and the matter of Britain as a national religion.
1: No. No, but like in, yeah, I I think you you said it pretty, pretty well there that it's, it's related there, you know, with the international component to all of these things. It's, it's a little different, but. I mean, you um, have
0: these days parts of the Anglican communion threatening to break off from the British part. So it's, you know, clearly there's a development (laughs) that has happened. (laughs) Which is interesting. Non-nationalistic, but certainly the farther back you go, you know, the more, the more close that parallel is but
1: but the the point of like a national blasphemy sure. is
0: well and especially yeah. like this almost and this predates anglicanism but there's uh the phenomenon of oh, what did they what were they called basically like royal cults and this comes out of catholic mm. england like after catholicism but before Anglic- anglicanism um the royal family in the sense that it was seen as like a theological body or set of bodies like mm. had mm-hmm. cults that developed in the same way that sort of saint cults developed and I'm using cult in a more archaic yep. Broad. term to mean a set of believers yeah. within a larger belief not like a separate thing but yeah mm-hmm. so that's, that's very much a thing but I think that what what Tetar is offending against here is not any of that, necessarily. Though, again, you could use it as a uh. parallel. It's this founding myth of Britain, this myth of Britain as um, a set of people as opposed to the people surrounding them. So, like, the King Arthur myth becomes uh-huh. about, you know, we are this this national body. We are the Knights of the Round Table and we defend this set of people against um, all all sort of barbarians or other forms of darkness.
1: I think that's something that, you know, relates to the question of, you know, the main character and the overarching plot and everything, because I don't think you can find a character in this book that you really fully relate to that the, the reader thinks I'm on this person's side or, you know, in, in the most, you know, sort of broad sense, um, which I don't, I, I don't want to argue that that's what novels should do sure. necessarily either, but I, I don't think that that exists. If you're looking for that in a that's novel, something this that...
0: novel will disappoint you. This, I agree with that. Yes. yes.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. But I think if you're looking um, for that which, in this
0: novel, you've missed the point.
1: I agree. Which, you know... I it, do agree. If, I think something If you want a novel
0: where that's the point, then just like, this isn't a novel for you, and that's fine. The, you're not right. wrong and that, Yeah,
1: exactly. No, I agree with you on that. That that's, you know, if that's not what you... If that's what you want from a novel, this yeah. is not your novel. Um, but I think an effect of that... From this novel is that it sets the reader apart as the silent party hmm. in this novel that everyone in this novel is wrong hmm. and therefore the reader winds up being right i think um,
0: like i like the the sort of thrust of your thought i don't know that this novel like Uh is really interested in the ideas of wrong or right but if i rephrase it and you know like plagiarizing the idea you just Mm -hmm. did and therefore going to jail if i rephrase it as uh the reader is the judge and everyone in this novel Uh is Judgeable. I I'm like not... that. Sl- I, I like, I mean, I don't yes. like it slightly better, but I think it's more in tune with what the novel is doing. Like, I, I, there's I'm no one on that, who's yeah. set up as being the paragon of virtue. And I think that's part of, that's like. Unimpeachable. Yeah, ex- <laughs> yes, unimpeachable. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I, I like that. Um, and I do think that's like the. That's sort of the, the thrust of where I was going because all I, I'm tempted to say, I'm tempted to posit, even though, again, I haven't read all mm. of them, but I'm tempted to posit that pretty much all of the retellings of King Arthur, including the ones that, like, you know, excuse me, myths um, of Avalon really emphasizes like that original sin where arthur slept with his sister and produced mordred and like that was the whole thing especially Mm in the 20th century retellings don't paint arthur as unimpeachable or as like always right or always good sure but even Mm -hmm. those ones i think try in their sort of problematized way to get to like this is why someone would be the matter of britain This is why, despite his flaws and his mistakes and the ways that he's abused his power, this is why someone would be, you know, uh, the founder of something good. And I think this novel just tosses all of that aside and says maybe this is just a story about someone who seized power when power was seizeable. Um, Sure. And this is what ties in both with stalker and with arthur as a character because Mm -hmm. i think if you want to think of arthur as a character in like the 20th to 21st century novelistic tradition um everything after part two will disappoint you uh because part two still Mm -hmm. fits in with that and it's a more of a victorian trope but it survives into the 20th century of like uh non-main character narrator narrating the main character and, like, the narrator's reflections have... You know, the Great Gatsby thing, right? Um, the narrator's really reflections, great. even though he's not the main character, they they color the story and, and problematize it. Um, I think all of that is in Part 2. I think after Part 2, the character of King Arthur becomes the matter of Britain. And I think... Um, That's why you can have entire sections of this book where Arthur is not on stage or on screen that are still about him. Now, the way that this ties into stalker that I, in the themes that I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, um, is the matter of Britain is that idea and is King Arthur as a mythic, um, monument to that idea is that something that has power in and of itself that it passes down the mm. timeline or down like the transmission of the myth or is that something that we take in every age that we take it and imbue our uh context's values onto it Um, Mm -hmm. I want to actually like, I fricking love the epigraphs to this book. Um, Mm. and I want to take them all. Well, okay. Aristophanes, which I've seen some reviews question whether this is a real, you know, thing or if this is Lavi Tidhar having a joke, but Aristophanes says, F them if they can't take a joke, which is like. Yep. Definitely appropriate to everything about this book. And like, if you can't see mm-hmm. the jocular elements of literally everything we've discussed so far, um, you're one of the people Aristophanes is talking about. Uh sure. or you might be. Uh I don't want to condemn you. You might be. Um Daniel Defoe, the True Born Englishman, 1701, from this amphibious illborn mob began. That vain, ill-natured thing, an Englishman. So that has a lot to do with, like, there's a mob and there's an Englishman. Which thing imbues its power onto which thing, right? Now, uh, the quote I actually wanted to focus on was the middle one of these three. And it's from Gildas, On the Ruin of Britain, uh, written sometime According to this epigraph between 510 and 530 AD, which is about a generation maybe two after the Romans pull out, right? Britain has kings, but they are tyrants. They plunder and terrorize the innocent They defend and protect the guilty and thieving. They sit with murderous men um, Which as like sort of a, a you know fire and brimstone sinners in the hands of an angry god of the sixth century like is just a wonderful passage all by itself and the thing is you can interpret that passage two different ways now gildas was was the jonathan edwards the fire and brimstone preacher of sixth century britain like uh he was a preacher who just condemned everybody. All the power structures, all the, like, kings. He especially focused on the ones who were supposedly Christians. Um, and he just ripped them apart. Um, to a point that, like, historians don't necessarily trust the, like, facts that he includes in his writings, uh, because he's (laughs) so clearly prejudiced or clearly, uh, you know has a very specific point of view but he's also one of the very few sources we have from sixth century britain especially like written sources so you know take that as you will Uh anyway so you you take this gildas quote right and if you're primed by all of the arthur stuff that has come before uh before by force alone um you're maybe primed to say oh, this is like what Arthur saved England from. But sure. if you read this actual book, it sure seems like Arthur himself, as portrayed in this book, might be one of the people Gildas is talking about. That's yeah. Part of it, yeah. Um, so, again, is Arthur... So, like... You take the Arthur of, of Thomas Mallory, right? The 15th century. Uh, mm-hmm. The high point of chivalry in, like, the classical sense of that word. Does this have anything to do with Mallory's mm-hmm. sources? Or does this portrayal have to do with who Mallory needed, needed him to be in 1485? Um, does Howard Piles, sure. like, very, you know, gung-ho, get him, defend the, defend the crown expand the empire to make the first British empire in the sixth century, which is completely ahistorical. Does that have to do with the sources Howard Pyle in the late 19th century is drawing from, or does it have to do with, uh, you know, the, the like British, you know, Sun never since on the British empire era, British boys adventure books pile is writing Mm -hmm. um and again with uh th white does the revisionist like very self-aware almost cynical especially with merlin doing long monologues on the ridiculousness of war is it a coincidence that that came out three years after world war ii ended um Mm -hmm. when literally everyone in the western world Americans and Brit, Brits and you know everyone else alike were completely re-evaluating the basis on which their civilization was founded um, and is it a coincidence that this book is published in 2020 you know which gives three to five years for Lavi Tidhar to have sort of processed a very much ascendant um, will to power slash uh, truth as a function of power set of political agendas both in the UK and in the United States um, and in France and in el- elsewhere in the developed world like how much is by force alone a commentary on the times that, in which it was written versus a commentary on uh-huh. like the sources that it draws from both uh, culturally, filmically, liter- literarily I think is the real word that I definitely didn't make up. and yep. But also mm-hmm. historically.
1: Yeah. Well, and that's, I think, something that we understand at least from Lavi Tidhar's perspective from his afterward, is that Arthur is a vehicle for contemporary commentary yes absolutely
0: um, but he only goes into the historical stuff in fact he dismisses yep and i wanted to just include this somewhere in one of these episodes he dismisses the sure. sort of commentary that you and i are the most apt to do in the last two sentences <laughs> of this freaking afterward where he says the attentive reader will no doubt find a great many and various references scattered throughout this novel to them my congratulations like
1: Right. Yeah, I, I I underlined that paragraph and wrote sure. Ha. Which
0: uh <laughs> did convince me in to in these this pair of episodes not point out my Inglorious Bastards reference that I caught. Um but or more than one potentially, but uh Yeah. So he's yeah. he's again like he's fully aware of that. And again, my question is mm-hmm. Excuse me. So he only goes into the history. He doesn't go into the cultural heritage or the literary yep. heritage. He goes a little in in so much as it's tied up in the history. He goes a little into the literary heritage, but he's mostly focused on the history. Right. So but I think the question he doesn't address, and I have to assume it's intentional, though maybe I'm wrong, mm-hmm. does King Arthur have power? inherently or does he only have the power that you and i and thousands to millions of other people give him
1: can i can i look at some passages in the book here that i think relate to this um there's one that i'm not finding but i know it's in here that someone says at some point it's always about power um that that's like it's always power. Yes, it's always about power. Which does two things for me. On the, in the first place, it unifies everything under that theme. I mean, we look at the title right. by fo- force alone. So the only reason anybody has a right to rule is they've seized the power, and so it's always about seizing that power. Do you remember? Mm-hmm. Do you remember what character said that? I don't I don't remember.
0: See, I don't either, but I think it's always about ca- power from that character's right. perspective.
1: Right, and that's that's the thing too that like because it's stated by this character, and I've already stated this fact that all the characters are wrong, um, right. means that it's it's not always about power. Um,
0: or to put it even more provisionally, it could not always be about sure,
1: power. sure something something along those lines. Um, then something that uh, connects with this overarching theme too, that you had, um, from your, 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 um, mistress book group. Um,
0: (laughs) that's just especially hilarious because sometimes Karen implies that you're my mistress.
1: (laughs) I love it. Um, so about the, 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 the concept of, um, you know, uh, does does god take in all the attributes that we assign or do we get the attributes from god yeah, okay um it's right. it's right at the beginning of part two part two on page uh 55 um where you've got the two cats who are observing no oh, arthur yeah. uh and it's morgan and merlin who are talking here um and merlin says the boy is mine and morgan says you mean you're a his um, which gets right. into that exact tension of this ambiguity of of possession and origin and um... well and that's
0: another place of that like comes out and is reinforced mm-hmm. is the the fae the folk the you know Merlin and, and the others because they are implied to have so much like a much longer existence and so much more power mm-hmm. than the humans, but they're also like it's it's explicitly said more than once they're dependent on the humans. Yes, yeah,
1: mm-hmm. yeah, which is almost like a um, like the the D and D sort of thing with the de- the divinity the 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 deities uh, that like sure. they have power only insofar as they have worshippers. Um, you know, which in the real world is almost like a Hindu sort of thing. Um, that, uh, uh, we're not the religion podcast anyway. Um, (laughs) but like that, that sort of two way street is, um, there with these, these characters.
0: Which again, to me works better From a nationalistic or a national myth sort of perspective, in the sense that, like, you can much more closely identify or, like, much more provably identify situations where a national myth has the power that Mm -hmm. the people who believe in it give it. Right. But on the other hand, the fact that it's so, you know, widespread historically does come to imply that maybe something else is going on there sure you know that this is basic to the human condition however you define basic and human condition
1: right it's well it's either basic to the human condition or is something that we can fill with our own definitions it's yeah which is related to why i understand the character of arthur in this novel as a MacGuffin. Um, Right. You know, it it doesn't matter who he is or what he stands for. He can be the most despicable person in the world, which Lavi Titar virtually creates him as. Not quite. I think there are other characters that are worse than Arthur, but just by virtue of the fact of Arthur's distance from the characters, he... Right. almost seems to fill a role of even more worse no, but, I... but like the, the this idea that you know he's this thing that we can fill with whatever we want him to be as long as we possess him whoever possesses him right. gets to define him and therefore define everything
0: <laughs> I think that's like a restatement of everything that I just said Okay, and I'm not saying that as like a you know Fighting words. I like. Put out. <laughs> we will have another duel on this podcast one day. One day. Um,
1: when we're in the same room.
0: Exactly. Uh, no, but like, I think that's a restatement. Because like, I was sort of mad at you for introducing the word MacGuffin <laughs> as soon as you did last episode. Because, yeah, in, in a sense, that's everything I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Is like, again like the and like there's been a lot of actually i think when i was reading i, I read some reviews about this book and also about arthurian legend generally mm. and like a lot of them sort of focused on that macguffin idea okay um and i think this book does also because i think you're right That's tied in with the idea of, especially if you view it from the the perspective that Arthur is whatever you imbue him with. Right. Like that's what a MacGuffin is. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Whoever gets to control the narrative of Arthur Mm -hmm. gets to control all of that power and all of that, Mm -hmm. you know, stuff. Which. Um,
1: I think you know relates uh, the the title again is is something that I think is really interesting by force alone, which implies this idea of you know seizing power and the the whole power behind power is just force, you know the this the, the might makes right um, sort of thing. Right. Um, but it's it's also I think questioning that idea that. Um, I, I, I mean, we mentioned that character that I can't remember who it was, and if I can find the page, I remember um, who said it's always about power. Um, right, by right. by putting that into a character's mouth, the author is saying it's not; it's the opposite. <laughs> like this, this is an understanding that's out there, but it's a wrong understanding, and it's or it's it's a limited understanding. It's only a partial understanding. Again.
0: Where you say wrong, I'm tempted to say questionable. Sure.
1: And that's by putting it more into a character's mean.
0: mouth. Yeah. Maybe we're saying the same thing in different words. Yeah. But by putting it into a character's mouth, the author makes it questionable.
1: Yes. It, it makes um, it impeachable. Yes. <laughs> to, <exactly. laughs> um Because that. again
0: <laughs> Yes. Um, and like, you know We talked about how this is not a political podcast Mm -hmm. i guess but we're we're recording this in 2021 in a very real way the last five to six years has been a referendum on the question of is truth a function of power
1: yes absolutely
0: because you have power do you get to dictate truth Mm -hmm. and um you know when you start again not trying to be too political when you start an administration with someone using the phrase alternative facts with a straight face you maybe defeat the idea that uh one wing of politics is into relativism oh, you may be you may be uh call into question the idea that one wing of politics is into relativism and one wing is into objective truth when the objective truth wing uses the phrase alternative facts. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, like you said, the phrase by force alone Uh really uh, implies that power and truth potentially uh, are functions of just power. Like truth is a function of power. Rather than the other way around, but I think you're right. Um, this book problematizes that idea by putting that sentence. The what? What's the sentence you keep quoting that you can't find a source for? It's, it's always, always by about person. power. It's always about power. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I think this. I think you're right that in creating a. Almost specifically, really creating a King Arthur legend
1: mm-hmm.
0: where no one oh. has a monopoly on truth or um, oh valiance or yep. any of that. I found it. Yes, please. It's page 150.
1: Okay. Um, and it's not in dialogue, which in my memory it was. Oh. Um, it's narrated in from merlin's perspective where right at the bottom of the page um the third to last full paragraph one line it's all about power it's always about power
0: yes and i think that reinforces what i was gonna what i was going for is like so yeah this is from merlin's perspective Mm -hmm. and again like You know, you talk about unreliable narrators, you usually talk about them in the first person, Mm -hmm. but uh, this book is a really good example of a set of third-person, still unreliable narrators. Mm -hmm. Because the narrator is so close in to the perspective of um, whatever character they're narrating, right? Yes. This is not a a third-person, you know, objective... Point of view where you're hovering above the characters and you're in different characters heads in the course of the scene um this is like so close so such a close in third person you almost might as well be in first person um Mm. there are certain advantages that Tidhar gains by still keeping it third person but like functionally speaking you can't trust the third person narration any more than you could trust whatever character mm-hmm. it's narrating yes uh so again i think that that sort of remains the same yes merlin because of who he is and his function would think that it's all about power
1: of course of course he would um
0: you know to take it out of like too current of a political context hmm. like maybe merlin is dick cheney like mm-hmm someone who's not the power quote-unquote but also really in a it's very close real to it. well he's close to it because he wants to influence it like yes. depending on how you look at it arthur is the power but depending on how you look at it merlin is the power
1: right Right. And those are sort of
0: both true simultaneously.
1: Yeah, and it, it it exactly it does depend on the definition and the the perspective on those things. Um, yeah. For for what what power means. Um, yeah. I I, I want to touch before we end. I do want to touch on some sure. more of the ambiguities of the title as well. Um, Wait,
0: is this novel ambiguous
1: ever? What? Um, I do wanna be honest that like there were times as I was reading it that I forgot what the title what the title of the novel was. Sure. <laughs> um but uh especially um early on, this is in parts two and part and three, um, where I, I noticed this thread and I think it continues through uh the novel as well for the ambiguity sure. of the title by force alone. Um, the first is on page 83, which is in part two, um, getting close to the end of part two, um, down at the bottom, um, Arthur smiles and Kay knows at that moment that he's lost him, that the Arthur he knew is gone forever now, had perhaps never existed in the first place. This new Arthur's nobody's friend and nobody's brother. He is alone. So alone. That's Okay. Arthur is the force, and he is alone. So by force, it's alone. Um, right. But also,
0: is... there's yeah. like a buried ambiguity in that set of sentences. Mm-hmm. Art, this new Arthur is nobody's friend, nobody's brother. He is alone. Is he who is alone? Is it Arthur or is it K?
1: Sure, sure. That's 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 a good question too. Um, I guess I took it as as Arthur. Cause that's the most immediate antecedent but it is it is an ambiguity there too um yeah again
0: if you want if we wanted to debate you'd probably win the debate but like it's still just syntactically there, still written but that way. it's yeah.
1: yeah if you wanted to be absolute about it i don't i'm not interested in that necessarily but um no, that's fair uh, we can have
0: our third episode on that pair of sentences
1: there you go. We'll, we'll argue semantics and syntax. Um, <laughs> Everyone <laughs> wants that. Yes. Um, all right. Uh, the, the next one is page 122. This is um, in uh, part three, close to the end of part three here. Um, and here's, I, I think, is it Arthur speaking here, giving a speech? Um. Did you say 122 or 123? 122. Gotcha. Oh, I um, see. Yeah. It's like there's a lot of bits and quotes here, but it's like paragraph after paragraph. It's a big speech. I think it's Arthur. Anyway. Yeah. Um, oh, shoot. This goes
0: back. No, it's not yeah. Arthur. Is it? It's is it Alpheus.
1: Oh, yes. You're right. It's Alpheus. Alpheus is
0: telling a story about Arthur.
1: That's right. That's right. Um, so just like it's, most of
0: what this section is,
1: yes, it, it's uh, the sixth full paragraph here that begins each of you, um, and the the line there is each of you alone is strong, but each of you is alone and lone is weak, and then it goes down, and the the last line of that paragraph is and each of us alone will fall before them, each of us alone. Um, so this idea of by force alone by f- so the, the the question of you know is this power taken by force alone is that the thing that defines this power right. that's so all important to Merlin and is that actually powerful uh, or is force alone weak? Um, yeah which I think is more or less asserted by the progress of this novel that, you know, if you just have force, if it's all about power, that's nothing. Ultimately, right. that's nothing that falls
0: apart. Um, number one, to be fair, like within Alpheus's story, the part you quoted was Arthur making a speech.
1: Mm. Um, Thank you for um, uh, redeeming me in that. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. Um, that's my job. Uh <laughs> Also, I would like to point out while we're here that, like, this is yet another sort of archaic uh, narrative device. The, like, framing, framing, framing story. Sure. Um, Because the framer of the section is Merlin, and -hmm. he forces Alpheus to talk to him, and Alpheus is quoting Arthur, and Arthur is really the climax of the section. Mm -hmm. Yet again, one of the things that the reasons I say, like, Arthur can be the main character without appearing on the stage, right? Sure. Um, and that's very Victorian, but it's also very uh, gothic. Um, sp- excuse me, structurally speaking, mm-hmm. uh, which is...
1: Well, it's even classical Greek, too. I mean, yeah, you know, the tragedy of Oedipus happens stage.
0: Yeah, but, like, gothic novels have are sort of... In- famous or infamous for, like, framing devices within framing devices. Oh, okay, you're talking, yeah, framing, yep, sure. Yeah, you're not wrong, but, like, yeah. Uh, So, there's there's that. Um, But you're right, again, and this embodies that ambiguity. Uh, So, it it points up the weakness of force alone, Uh but... This, this call for unity that Arthur is, is performing, the implication at least is mm-hmm. that this is what creates the matter of Britain, this idea uh-huh. of unity and this idea of pulling diverse, you know, elements together, making people work together across certain, you know, boundaries, whether political, religious, or military, forceful however you want to sure. sort of put that so yeah that's that's a that's a quite relevant quote
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh michael was there anything else you wanted to highlight any quotes or I, or through lines or anything
1: i feel like there were other things that i i had thought of in various points but i can't remember exactly what i wanted to get to i mean there's the quote that's from oppenheimer um i am become death destroyer of the world destroyer of worlds we haven't talked about the um <laughs> radiation and everything that's gone through right. except and anecdotally anyway that, that that but that's itself sort of anecdotal on its own i
0: mean the one thing i wanted to say about this book was that it really is 14 books yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Really, what Lavigne Tudor did, did is conceptualize his own entire version of the Arthur saga, and then compress it into one novel that could be pub- published by a mainstream publisher in the year twenty twenty.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um. So yeah, like we could go into much more into the references to stalker or other references to the like radiation and alien stuff that is in this book. Um, we, could into... yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, we could go into. Yes. Thank you. We could go into Mordred. We could go into. Oh shoot. Who's the, the pure night sir. Uh... Galahad. Galahad and the complete offensiveness and corruption of his portrayal um right like which to me was all i'll say about it is like it's one of the weakest aspects of the book one of the weakest sections or set of sections i thought i don't know if you agree but
1: i i think i agree with you on that uh it's more gratuitous than the rest
0: yeah it in as much as like all the sections seem isolated in certain ways it seems Mm. isolated further and unnecessary like you could just cut it out and you would lose nothing right but yeah anyway we could go into a lot of that stuff but we are already over time
1: (laughs) that never happens
0: (laughs) i yeah this is the first time in the history of pod of the podcast that we've done that uh so yeah Any last, like, one-liners you want to really want to get out, Michael?
1: None that won't uh, fit into the ratings. (laughs) Sure. Okay.
0: Michael, what is your rating of this book on a scale from buy, borrow, to forget about it?
1: Um, Well, as I hinted at the beginning of last episode, um, it was a little bit fluid, but I'm at this point on a very hard borrow um and my very firm borrow on this book is precisely because i think arthur king arthur carries a lot of weight um for many people and so if you're interested in arthur you just want to borrow it but if you're interested in Arthur, <laughs> you might want to buy it. Um, and that's uh, that's that's where borrowing it will, will kind of help determine that for you a little bit. Okay. Um, uh, there was something else I wanted to say in that respect here. Um, and it's not coming to me now. It, 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 it needs to be a borrow. I think... Um, well, there are there are many facets of, of people who are going to come to books, and you know we talked about how are you going to come to this looking for um, that uh, looking for a character that you can follow that you can relate to. If so, this is not the book for you. Um, and so this is this is not a book for everyone. So I can't just give it a buy um, rating. Right. Um, for some, it will be a buy, but that's something that individuals will need to determine for themselves and that's why it's a borrow um for me i think
0: yeah i honestly that's my exact rating and i had actually decided that rating like at the end of when i read it and not um like nothing we've said really changed it now i will say i guess the only second guessing of it i have done is because i feel bad about that rating Because I love (laughs) Lavi Tidhar as an Mm -hmm. author. Um, Like, I really love, like, everything I have read by him. I, like, I really like sort of what he embodies and who he is as a voice in the current, like, speculative fiction arena. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know that this is his greatest work. I would say by the bookman trilogy um which is the the first book of which is what i almost had us read this podcast Mm. um and borrow like separate from that i would say borrow this one uh if like me you read through this one one time and feel like you probably are going to want to read it again buy it then um but like this this take on Arthur and this take on the like medieval dark ages fantasy that it embodies is like, kind of like you said, Michael, it's going to be very particular and very specific. Mm -hmm. And I can't blanket recommend everyone buy it the way that everyone should buy and read forever. Tristram Shandy. Sure. Sure. Um, That's the standard. Partly, partly has to do with some of the later sections. Like, the Galahad section or sections just felt like they didn't work with the rest of it. And like, Mm -hmm. as much as I appreciated like the stalker connections, like that felt out of tune. Like a lot of it. Oh
1: yeah. That's, that's maybe part of what I was, I was thinking of with this too, that like near the end, I felt like i was suffering from radiation poisoning <laughs> um like i there were parts of it not the whole parts of it that i thought do i need why why am i reading do i need to read this yeah can i skip um, this section and like go to the next yep. section
0: and like yep still get everything
1: right yep. yeah 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 that's that's part of why it's a borrow but also like i want to read it again to see yeah
0: exactly Like, almost my recommendation would be if your library does the standard 28-day, you know, loan Mm -hmm. thing, uh, borrow this book, read it week one, and then week three, like seven days before it's due, read it again,
2: Mm -hmm.
0: and whatever you think on the second read, act accordingly. Exactly. Either return it and never, you know, get it again, or, uh buy it even if you don't read it after those two times just buy it for like the value whatever little value it will give to the author to have an additional actual sale
1: yes so i think
0: both of us maybe are like this is the closest to buy it we can be while still saying borrow it
1: i i yes (laughs) that's certainly me
0: i don't want to speak for you
1: no, I yeah, that's that's pretty accurate to to my rating as well. Like my rating was so much on a like a, a weaving spectrum between forget about it and buy it <laughs> that like yeah. eventually I settled on borrow. <laughs> yeah. No, I
0: definitely had points in my read where I was tempted to say forget about it, but hmm
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, that said. Uh, gentle listener, thank you for listening. We, um, do you want to like... like
1: the pairing?
0: Oh yeah. Uh, Michael, how did you feel about the pairing of Oban with By Force 11?
1: Well, since I wasn't drinking, um, the, uh, old Pulteney that, uh, that you had selected, um, I, I almost felt bad about, you know trying to think of a a pairing here but
2: yeah but i mean the open 14
1: i did the open 14 i'm gonna say is a perfect match for this book um sit down read this book drink some open 14 uh especially if you've got an open window in front of you while you're reading and drinking this open 14 that's what that's, that's my recommendation what does the
0: open window do
1: The open window gives you the fresh air that you get a lot of in the drinking of this open 14. Okay.
0: So that does sound pretty similar to, like, at least the advertised experience of Old Pulteney. Okay. And I would say, like, Old Pulteney being... Old Pulteney, you know, on the bottle is advertised as, like, uh... You know, it's exposed to the sea air. Like, there's a lot of wildness and stuff to it. Um, and I've always thought that that comes through in the scotch. Uh, and, like, part of the reason I originally wanted to do it for this one was also just because, like, this was one of our first scotches, I think. Um hmm. And I wanted to, like, revisit it to see if it was mm-hmm. as good as we thought the first time. Sure. Uh, and, yeah, I I still really like it as a scotch. And I think that, like, a lot of, like, the, you know, I could see this being something that someone in this book barreled up and put up north and then, like, you know, decanted and served to, like... <laughs> You know, one of the people in this book, probably not Arthur, but like maybe yeah. someone that Arthur intersected with, if that makes sense.
1: Right. Yep. Um, I, I I gotcha. And anybody who's read this book, I think, has gotcha.
0: <laughs> so yeah, I thought it was a, a perfect match that awesome. way. All right. So uh, thank you for listening, uh, gentle listener. Uh, and please join us for our next book, which is Babbitt by Sinclair Lewis. Uh, feel free to read us, read along and give us your feedback. You can go to the contact section of tapestryradio.org. Uh, you can tweet us at Room with Scotch on Twitter. Michael, what's your Twitter?
1: My Twitter is at M-G-L-I-L-I-E-N-T-H-A-L.
0: Excellent. Mine is at bjartlett. That's at B-J-A-R-T-L-E-T-T. Uh, let's see. You can join the Tapestry Radio Tap House on Facebook. If you request to join, we'll let you in, unless you are any of the characters in By Force Alone. Uh... But if you are levied hard, nope. we will let you in and also... Oh, sure. Uh, probably die of excitement. Um, we will also do your homework. We don't promise to do it well, but we do condone, condone plagiarism because we think it's funny. For us, not for you. We um, go to tapestradio.org slash scotchcast. Fill out the form. We'll do our best. We'll make it fun. If you like us... Check out our other shows on the Tapestry Radio Network, shows like Intermission, our backstage audio drama podcast, Us Play Fiasco, our Fiasco Real Play podcast featuring the Fiasco RPG, Freddy Goes to a podcast, our other literature podcast so far, Pokemon Rollout, our Pokemon Tabletop United actual play RPG podcast. Um, Did I get all the words? (laughs) I feel like yeah. I missed one. Oh, no,
1: that was great. Sweet. Oh, no, you did it.
0: Uh rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And uh yeah. Michael, anything I left out or that you'd like to say?
1: Sounds great to me.
0: Alright. Until next time, just remember, it's our party and we'll cry if ambiguity.